Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 54. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Linux ransomware with cloud threat detection engineer and founder of Signal Blur, David Burkett. Thanks for coming back to chat with us on the show, David. It's great to have you here. Yeah, glad to be back. Before we get going, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah, my name's uh, David Burkett. have done cloud detection work for quite a while now for Fortune 50. I uh, have done a lot of consulting in the past, uh, including built a few uh, SOCs and MDR programs. Uh, so that's kind of my background in a, a quick two-second blurb. Yeah, thanks for that. Normally, I would ask a bunch of questions about your career and help our listeners understand why they should care about what you think. But you've been on the show before, and I don't feel like we need to double up on that. If anybody is curious to learn more about David, they can check out episode number six way back in November of last year. I will link that episode in the show notes. For now, you can just take my word that David is a world-class cybersecurity defender and, in fact, is one of the regular contributors to the Intel channel on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel that Matt Bromley and myself chat about weekly on the show. Thanks for doing that, by the way, David. Yeah, no problem, man. I actually, I, I think I've mentioned this to y'all before, but I really enjoy hanging out in the Lima Charlie Slack. A lot of the intel there is just actual gold, you know, having people like Josh Trombley and Yohai and some of the others that regularly contribute. It's it's really useful. Quite a cool little community that's grown up there. It fills my heart with pride and joy. All right. The reason I asked you on the show today is because I recently read a blog article you wrote about the uh, threat of Linux ransomware, which I think is something that doesn't get talked about enough. I feel like Windows and all the security issues that come along with the Microsoft ecosystem dominates a lot of the conversations we have, which makes sense to a degree. The vast majority of corporate businesses and government organizations are Windows shops, which makes the technology a great target for threat actors, both cyber criminals and APTs. But the threat against Linux is huge. Linux is used to power 96.3% of the world's servers and often deployed with basic default configurations. That combined with the rise of supply chain style attacks on open source projects we're seeing is a recipe for all things bad. What has your experience been throughout your career? Do threat actors target Linux as much as Windows? Is it a small percentage? Is it trending up? They definitely target Linux. Uh, as much as Windows, it's hard to say because for so long, so few organizations have had really good uh, Linux monitoring in place. So in my history, most of my work prior to the past year or so has been primarily Windows focused. But over the, uh, gosh, yeah, the past year or so, I've been focusing a lot more just on Linux, um, malware, ransomware, that sort of thing. And it, there definitely seems to be a, a more prevalent than I actually uh, thought of, or thought it would be. Prior to going in and you know doing this research, I didn't expect there to be as many groups as there were attacking Linux as far as ransomware goes. But I was also surprised because one of the key things that I thought hadn't been really made clear enough was that a lot of the quote-unquote Linux ransomware isn't actually targeting necessarily the Linux host as you'd think about it as much as the VMware ESXi hypervisor and then encrypting the, the actual Linux virtual machines underneath. So that was probably the the biggest thing that I'd like to call out yeah, and we'll get into those details in a moment, but I'm curious, there's so many variations of Linux. Is there any specific flavors that are deemed, quote-unquote, more secure than others? No, I think, honestly, uh, it, it, it's going to, of course, be, uh, and it depends, as all good questions and answers are, but I think the, the best way to go about 
running a Linux environment is whichever one you feel you have the most confidence in supporting and securing, you're probably going to be much better off than using something uh, that maybe more of a modern distribution that is maybe a, a lot more bare bones and lacking some of the actual interactive tools that you might expect a Linux server to have. The Where it goes into the it depends, if you do have a, a really strong uh, Linux shop and a, a really strong Linux background, there are some distributions now that are very minimal and only contain just the bare bones of what you need. Uh, and running those uh, is definitely preferred if you if you have that capability. It just reduces your overall attack surface. Right. The less dependencies, the less things that can be compromised and the less entry vectors. Exactly. It also makes it more difficult for the threat actors whenever they get on box it, if they can't, you know, compile things once they get on there or access even something like wget or curl to pull down that second stage. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in your article, you talk about two classes of attacks focused on Linux. There is the regular type that targets the host server itself, and then I would say the more advanced type that targets hypervisors and related VM files. Before we get into hypervisors, let's talk about what an attack on a host server generally looks like. Is there a commonality to these attacks, or is it as wide and varied as we see with Windows? So this was actually a sore spot for me. One of the trends that I found when researching anything related to Linux malware is that it, the actual behaviors or the tactics that are used are almost entirely lacking on the Linux front. So they'll often really focus their emphasis on a more reverse engineering approach of the actual binary or shell script itself, which is great and nice, but it doesn't tell you, you know, uh, it'll typically start off with something they exploited a vulnerability. Maybe that's a remote code execution or whatever, but that's not, you know, what are they doing once they have that remote code execution? Are they pulling down a second stage binary? What are some of the commands that they're running on disk afterwards? You know, a lot of that stuff is just plain missing. So to be kind of, to be blunt, it's hard to find a lot of trends. The The thing that I think I would most call out in the uh, uh, the hypothesis that I really kind of came up with in the, the blog was, and it, it kind of makes sense, most of the Linux attacks are going to be theoretically exploiting a, an exposed remote service. So if you're able to baseline that service, especially when it comes to the child processes that it spawns and the command line arguments, you should theoretically be able to catch on the behavior your application being exploited. So let's say, for example, you're running like a Python fast API app and you're running maybe Nginx or Caddy as a web surfer for it. If you see uh, something like, you know, who am I or something spawning as a child process from either of those, that's a good indicator that someone's going to be able to execute code on that box or is it uh, doing recon. Same thing if you see any kind of other follow-up on that. So a good detection strategies would be to maybe write rules for things spawning child processes and looking at them individually, or is there something broader we can do? Yeah. So I've actually, I've been thinking about how you can really do this at scale because doing this, if you're a small shop where you have, you know, maybe 10 Linux servers is really easy just as you're deploying your apps, you know, go in and do it manually one off. But that's not something that'll really scale once you have, you know, 100,000 servers with a few you know, thousand app uh, running on them. So some of the things that I've been thinking about are looking for uh, actual processes that are listening on exposed 
network ports and have network interaction, and then doing some automation around what are the child processes that are spawned and what are some of the command line arguments in those child processes. And then uh, essentially just looking for and not the, you know, what we've observed. So any deviation from that pattern of normal. Yeah, that seems like a reasonable approach. And as mentioned earlier, the other type of attack is not on the host server itself, but rather targets the hypervisor. Can you explain to our listeners who may not know what a hypervisor is? Yeah. So uh, again, I, I mentioned this earlier. This was something I didn't think was made clear enough in a lot of the Linux ransomware uh, articles. Is But a, a hypervisor is essentially what is going to simulate the uh, the underlying hardware and the do the virtualization of your virtual machines. And there's typically two types of hypervisors. You have a, a tier one hypervisor. That's going to be something that's going to just run bare bones on the actual hardware itself. So you're not going to necessarily install, you know, like Linux and then install something on top of it. You're just going to install the hypervisors that runs on that server. And then you'll, you know, load your VMs on top of that. Whereas a tier two is something that most people are going to be, I guess, more familiar with. And that's going to be something like VirtualBox where, you know, you have your desktop application and you're able to do your virtualization you know, locally to your local system. So I guess the TLDR one is um, more interactive. It, it doesn't require a host OS. And then the other, you can actually like interact with more easily through like your GUIs and desktop, that sort of thing, typically. So is is there a reason threat actors choose to attack a hypervisor versus the specific host servers themselves? And why is it difficult for defenders to detect things on the hypervisor? Yeah, so I, I on that part, I only have theories. My hunch is if you have access to the hypervisor as a threat actor, you only need to develop one type of encryption tool, really, to encrypt the VMs, and it'll encrypt them regardless of if they're Windows or Linux. So I, I think there's a few things. I think that if attackers have the opportunity and the access to be able to do it, it's a, a easy target that'll have high impact because uh, hypervisors are typically hosting your server infrastructure. And it's also hard to detect because it, in the the samples that I, I used in my blog, they run on uh, VMware ESXi. So you're, they're going to be out of view of your traditional logging or your EDR tooling. So you wouldn't necessarily have something to see any new process executions on your ESXi server. So it makes it much more difficult to see. And one of the things that I also found in this, it was difficult to find information on how they got that initial access to the the hypervisors. So some of the, the kind of theories uh, that I have were using things like if uh, they had SSH enabled to the ESXi management interface. It's a bad practice and you shouldn't do it. But if you have to, you know, you should definitely baseline that traffic and look for a deviation from it. So that was uh, one of the, the theories I had. And I'm assuming there's probably some instances of, you know, some sort of RCEs that allows them to get code execution, but there's just not that many details on, you know, how they're getting access to it. Yeah, I would think these kind of attacks would have to come after breaching the network somewhere else. Something like user clicks on a phishing email, attacker gets persistence, scans the network, makes some lateral moves and attacks the hypervisor. Is that sort of the kind of flow? That's uh, been my best kind of guess. 
Okay, yeah, that made sense to me. So quite a few famous ransomware gangs use these strategies. Red Alert, Confit, Black Basta, Our Evil, Black Matter, Defray 777, Hello Kitty, Royal, Black Suite, RTM Locker, and more. It's definitely something defenders should know about and have strategies for detecting. Were you able to come up with some effective detection strategies around hypervisors? Yeah, so there's a few potential ways. Um, of course, you could always, uh, if you have a network IDS in front of that management interface and you're capturing that traffic, and especially if you're able to do any sort of decryption that might exist between that sensor and your interface, being just a, essentially alerting on any kind of ELF binary being sent to that hypervisor, I'm sure that would probably trigger a false positive on updates of some sort, but I would think that something like that would have some sort of pattern that would make it easy to tune out. Also, if you're running a, a network IDS like Security Onion, it has a tool on it known as a Strelka, which essentially will just, all of the files that uh, traverse across the Zeek network IDS, it'll pull those files off the network and then run YAR rules against them, do things like OCR to pull out the text and give you all that metadata so you can go through and alert on it. So that's another potential option. And then, uh, like I mentioned a moment ago, baselining some of that SSH traffic and just the net, the network interface traffic for the management ports in general. I would even consider doing things like alerting on any SSH attempt, success or failure, just because if it's successful, you, you might have a, a case of just an insecure configuration. And if it's a failure, you know, that's something someone's probably trying to access that it may not be, you know, supposed to. So, and then also SSH being enabled, if that does generate a log, that's something I'm not being able to test yet. Okay. Yeah. I noticed in your blog article, you included quite a few Yara signatures. Are those something that uh, users should consider putting as part of the regular detection process? Yeah, uh, definitely. So um, there's a few different ways that you can use Yara. Uh, there is a, uh, Lima Charlie actually makes it really easy. Uh, to go through and use a, a lot of those Yara signatures for the the ransomware that would actually be on disk on the Linux hosts. But uh, in the case of the other ones, like I said, if you have good network uh, sensor traffic uh, visibility, I think it's definitely worth worth using them. A lot of the ESXi-based Linux ransomware seems to have a lot of really commonalities in terms of strings, just based on how it works. So if you can detect one, it seems so far. And I'm going to, I don't want to jinx this, but it seems that uh, you can hopefully detect most of them. Hope is not a strategy, I was told once upon a time. But <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to add here about Linux ransomware? Anything we failed to cover? The only thing I want to add, uh, and this isn't anything in about the Linux malware ransomware itself, is just more of a call to researchers and MSSPs. To if they could start including things uh, such as the behaviors that were done, you know, how different binaries get on disk, that'll really help defenders. Just having something similar to like a defer report attack chain, um, but for Linux would just be incredibly useful. But stuff like that's just so rare. So if that's ever uh, an option, I do would call to you, for you to post that publicly. The call has been made. Hopefully somebody answers. Okay, this is the last one I have for you. I ask it of everybody on the show. I'm pretty sure I asked it of you last year. Do you have any predictions for the future? Yes. My predictions for the future are as phishing and maldocs become more and more difficult to get delivered to 
end users, the amount of exploits, like remote code executions being used as an initial access vector, my opinion is that's probably going to rise. And when you think about it, and, and this is definitely not always the case, but as you kind of talked about with so much of the cloud being powered by Linux, a lot of your uh, systems that are going to be exposed publicly are probably going to be Linux. So it's going to be a good time to go ahead and start securing those, get some visibility into them. Awesome. Well, as always, David, it's great talking to you. I really appreciate you being on here, sharing your expertise, and really appreciate you sharing that expertise week after week in the Slack channel. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Take care, man. You too. Bye. And that concludes episode number 54 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.